This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today we're going to be doing a, a very complicated shiva. It's from 5741, um, over Av and El. It's written to two figures who don't appear elsewhere in most of the shivas that I can find, Rabbi Olive Greenfield and Rabbi uh, Rav Herman, and another Rabbi uh, shows up somewhere in the middle. They see the people who were investigating certain agricultural facts. The shiva is addressing the general question of, of chadash. Right? So chadash is grain that has been grown since the has taken root since the preceding Pesach, and um, the halacha following Mishnah Orla, which we hold as Mishnah Beliezer, but then the Shulchan Aruch Paskins like and pretty, pretty much uncontested, is Chadash Aser Minatora Bechol Makom that even in outside the land of Israel, Chadash uh, is Aser Deraisa, but it's also halacha that is you can you know, imagine imposes uh, grave hardships, especially on people who don't do their own uh, grain growing, and there may not be any grain available for long periods of time that uh, that was grown the previous uh, the previous year. And so you have uh, places where this is a, a kind of a minagoker halacha. The Ramah says that um, in some places you shouldn't tell people the halacha because mutav shishogigin v'ayu mezidim. And as is usual in, in such circumstances, there are uh, you know, there are very clever technical answers that explain why, even though that's the halacha, that halacha doesn't apply to this grain. Um, so the Ramach offers one of those uh, answers. The Ramach says that ordinary grain in his countries is mutter because of a sveik sveika. What's the sveik sveika? Well, maybe this grain is from last year. And even if it's not from last year, maybe it was maybe this it's this year's crop that took root before Pesach. Okay, now that seems there are a couple of things. One is how do we know what the percentages are? Uh, it sounds like the Ramah's um, argument doesn't depend on there being any specific percentages once you meet whatever the minimum is. It's not fifty fifty. Um, it's not even clear. I think it's probably not that it necessarily adds up to if you put the two sveikos together, that more than 50% of the grain is mutter. Um, I'll leave you to judge that. Um, and it's, you know, it's not clear why we don't break this down to that single question. Why do we call this a sveik sveika? Uh, why don't we break it down to the single question, is this after Pesach or before Pesach? I'm going to try to ignore the sveik sveika issues to the extent I can. Uh, and a background, uh, background issue as well here is that you might think that chadash is a davar sheyesh matirin, uh, meaning that I have this grain in front of me, I don't know whether it's chadash or yashan, well, I can wait till um, next Pesach, and once next Pesach comes, it's certainly mutter, it's certainly yashan now, right? Can't have been grown right, since, the, uh, uh, since the preceding Pesach, so once Pesach passes, we're great. Um, so that normally means that if it's not lutzorech, at least some people will say that you can't rely on a sveik sveika. So what does that do to the Ramah? Um, and sec- right, at least if it's not Lutzorech, the Ramah says Tob Lahachmir for that position, if it's not Lutzorech. And secondly, there's a marshal who says that the normal reliance um, on, instead of a sveik sveika, we can also use Trey Rube. 
Uh, Shrei Rubeh are two majorities, which are also a dicey kind of thing, because uh, the two majorities don't necessarily are not additive. Right? It's not. It's not like you have one fifty percent chance, one fifty percent chance, and now you have the odds are seventy five percent or ninety nine percent, whatever the whatever, whatever however they work out. It's just two totally separate ways of thinking of the odds. That normally works, but the Marshal says it doesn't work if it's a devarshish lamatirin. So we're going to have to try and um, resolve both issues about devarshish lamatirin. We're going to have to resolve whether it's litzorich or not. And the underlying question for me is going to be, do we consider this something which imposes an obligation of efshar levure? So reminding us that generally, if uh, if there's a rove, that works to oraisa. Um, maybe a sfeik sfeika counts as a rove, maybe it doesn't. And But then, once you've gotten it, mutter diorisa, so then there's still a chenisar dirabanan if it's a, if it's, if we're left with a miyah hamatsui, and if you don't, and if you have less than a miyah hamatsui, so then it's mutter entirely, the only thing is you still have an obligation to clarify it if that doesn't put you to too great costs. Um, so now the question that we're going to be addressing is what constitutes a cost and what interests me especially is how do we calculate both the cost? We calculate the cost by individuals, saying that, well, if I tried to find out what this is, that would be too much effort, too much expense. Or do we, right? But what happens if the community has an option of, find, right, of spending, right, not so much to, um, right, so that some people in the community can find out and then they can tell everybody else? But it will cost something to put that, uh, to create that for the community, and then what happens if the um, that if people charge for their clarification, or if the, right, or if it's more expensive to buy the products that have been clarified, or it would be if everyone but only the but, but only those products. Uh, so that, to some extent, is the question about the way halachic standards are changed by the existence of kashrus agencies, because kashrus agencies make it possible to. Right, even if there's a product which, um, if you just read the ingredients, you could be 96% sure that it's kosher. So there's not even a mute hamotsui that it's strafe. But you can't get above 96. But if you if you, um, if you call a kashrus agency, they could investigate. Or more to the point, you can get to 99% by looking for a kashrus symbol. Um, but the, the product with a kashrus symbol on it might cost more. So do we say, well, but you can clarify it already. So right, if it's so easy to clarify it, so by all means, you can't. How could you possibly eat something that's only ninety six percent necessarily kosher when you get to ninety nine point nine percent? Or do we say, look, we should think this as a communal level. Is it worth the expense for our community if there is one, which is not true in many kashrus um, cases? Uh, is it worth it for individuals for the community right to create the the possibility of clarifying, even though that right just the possibility of clarifying creates costs because now we can't buy the cheaper product when it's on sale. Okay, so we're going to try to address those issues, uh, at least raise those issues in the context of this truva. Again, it's from Tafshin Mem Aleph, and Ramosha addresses the question in the following context. He's given facts, right, which he which he takes as given, which is that in the specific year, right, there, right, he's given numbers for the right for the wheat, barley, and shibolet shul, um, which presumably means in this context, whatever you think it meant, chazal means oats. He's given numbers on them. And we're going to focus on the on the wheat numbers. The wheat numbers are forty one percent of the grain. I'm assuming it means the grain on the market is grain that was grown this year before Pesach. Eighteen percent is grain that grain that's left over from last year, and 
41% is grain that is chadash, because it was, it's grain that was, that took root this year. So, Ramosha says that the, that the Ramah in Reit Sari Gimel Gimel says the following, Stam tvua shari l'achar ha-pesach, ordinary, right, generic grain, uh, where you don't know its origin, is permitted after Pesach, mikoch sveik sveika. What are the two sveikos? Maybe it's from last year, and maybe it took root before this year. Um, then the Ramos says, um, the Ramosha doesn't quote this, um, so therefore, in, country, in countries where there's a specific grain that you know is only plant, is, but never takes root before Pesach, so in that, that grain is also until the next Pesach. Um, but the Ramos says, that's not true if the country's borders are open to agricultural imports, because if there are other places where that grain might have been grown before Pesach. So that's an issue that I think is going to be important in the background, that uh, all these numbers, um, in ter- if, you, if you know the production things in your local country, that's only relevant if, you, uh, if, if your country doesn't, um, doesn't import, or for that matter, export, if it exported, right, because the amount on the market might be affected by what's, um, what's exported. Okay, so Rav Moshe says, look, so you're telling me it's, right, the, right, assuming that the, which we're assuming that the Ramah just says you need two Sveikos, which really means you need two Mir HaMatsuis. Um, so we have a 41% and 18%. That's a Sveik Sveika. So it should be Mutter. But he says, and the Shach said, really, why does Sveik Sveika work uh, if this is a Dabr Shiesh Lomatirin? So the Shach has two answers. One is a technical answer that, that, only applies when we know there's Isser in the, the grain in front of us, and here we don't know there's Isser in the grain in front of us. And a second answer, which is that the that we only hold like that position that you can't use a Sveik Sveika for a Devashiyashal Matirin when there's no Tzorach. Okay, so now Rav Moshe says, okay, but in Europe there was really a Tzorach because bakers and certainly individuals didn't have the storage and didn't have the, the money to, um, to have a, enough grain Left over from the previous year to make it till to make it till the next Pesach. Um, okay, the Ramah says right that um, the Sveik Sveika works l'achar Pesach. The problem is going to be what happens when the previous year's gra- grains grow out. Um, okay, but uh, so we, but let's assume that because we've mixed it all together, the previous year's grain is not going to go out. But maybe it's not l'tzorich anymore because maybe we are in fact rich enough that uh, we have enough storage space that bakers and individuals could get enough, right, could store enough grain for the previous year. So maybe the Ramaz Heter is obsolete, and we should require people to buy, uh, right, to buy specially Hechshered grain. Um, so Rabbi right, so says, look, if we couldn't find out, then of course it would be Mutter. But, he says, um, maybe, he says, but you know, it seems to me that once we we can get to at least these expert estimates every year, we can probably find everything out. Now it's clear clear what the everything out means. Does he mean that we need to check every year to make sure that the numbers still generate the Sveik Sveika, or does he mean that maybe now that right if we can find that out, we can probably we probably don't have to wait until everything is a joint tarovit. We could identify farms that are right where that plant wheat that roots after Pesach, and we should make all Hechshar products come from those farms. Um, okay, and Ramosha is not, right, so Ramosha says, if Betircha Yostrik Sas and my suggestion is, but I don't know what, and I'm not sure if Ramosha meant it, but what constitutes Tircha Yostrik Sas? If it, right, if that will, if buying grains from specific farms will, will 
raise prices. Um, so is that Tirchi Yosrik Sas? If the Tirchi Yosrik Sas is a communal decision by you know, setting up, setting up um, an agency that finds this out, but no individual could find it out unless the agency did, is that also Tirchi Yosrik Sas? I'm not sure. And it might be that Rav Moshe is just saying that we should find out, as opposed to relying on numbers from year to year, we should make the effort to go find out every year exactly what the numbers are. Okay, I'm not sure. Then um, Rav Moshe says that you don't even that if one of your sveikos is better than fifty-fifty, then you don't even need a sveik sveika. What all you need are tray rube. Um, and then he says, you know what? So maybe what you need is a ro- maybe a rove and a suffix counts just right. The maybe a maybe a suffix even when it doesn't have rove will count as the equivalent of a second rove. Now that sounds like crazy because a second rove is over fifty percent, and this suffix might just be a mir hamatzah, which is only like you know let's say five to fifteen percent. But the answer is that when we use tre rube, we usually don't require them to be additive statistically. You can have you can have uh, you know a one way of thinking of the problem where it's a 60% odds and one way of thinking about the problem where it's 51% odds and the total of that together uh, is certainly going to be less than 60%. Um, so if that works, then maybe a rove plus a second suffix works uh, works as well and that works as a depreciation and that works even though the marshal thinks that that trade rube um, uh, the marshal thinks that rove doesn't work for depreciation of material and the trade rube um, even the even the marshal um, agrees. Okay, bottom line, um, all these arguments are relying on a sveik sveika, which at the very least seems dicey, or a trey rube that seems um, that seems very odd. Uh, so the underlying question, I think, if Moshe addresses correctly, is like we wouldn't rely on these heterim if we didn't need to. And the question then is, what constitutes need to? Um, and what, when do we have a duty to, to find out um, or not? And the answer is that no individual could possibly have a duty to find out. I mean, an enormous amount of research would have to do to try and find out what the agricultural odds of, right, of the market were each year. Um, but as a community, we have the possibility of finding out. But the community finding out will have costs for the community, both in terms of just the finding out and then in terms of perhaps the economic cost of the products. Um, now that, I guess, could be a circular thing. It could be that as more and more kosher consumers um, try to be makbid on, um, on Yashan, then the uh, then economies of scale will come in um, and the price of Yashan things won't cost more at all. On the other hand, it, there's always a cost of requiring uh, hashgacha, which is that once we say that you can only buy product with hashgacha because of Efshir Livruri, now you can get 99.9%, so that means that poor people cannot buy the products on sale, even if the overall average cost of putting a hashgacha on it is nothing, but there are the weeks when the product is on, with hashgacha is on sale, the weeks when the product is not on hashgacha is on sale. Um, so to what, so how those economic realities play out in the cost of, um, in the case of Yashan and Chadash, I think are worth investigating. There's this one line of motion I'm really not sure how to read. Again, it says, Shim Kane, sir, um, sorry, it says that, um, Aval Mistaber, the Betircha Yosir Ksas, Yuhu Lavar Rakol. So, what does Lavar Rakol mean? And secondly, right, and who is the Ksas evaluated on? And what do we think the reality is now? There's no question that many more uh, cashless agencies are offering at least um, Yashan certified options. Um, not just in the, in matzah where I think it started, 
Um, and as with many products, as many, many issues, uh, we don't really have a sufficient grasp of economic impact, uh, I think, to make a clear decision. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 